This does not mean a future without jobs, as some doomsayers predict, but robots will almost certainly push down wages in all the remaining human-touch jobs. Child care, elder care, home health care, personal coaches, sales, and so on. That robots can't do because they're not, well, human. Even today, with technology having already displaced many workers, there's no job crisis. Instead, we have a good jobs crisis. Today's typical American worker earns around $44,500 a year, not much more than what the typical worker earned in 1979, adjusted for inflation. Nearly 80% of adult Americans say they live from paycheck to paycheck, many not knowing how big their next paycheck will be. I offer this warning to parents. In the information age, because change and money are invisible, without real financial education, how can parents know what schools have and have not taught their children? All most parents know is what they were taught in school. They do not know what was missing from their education. That is why most parents I talk to say, my child is in a good school. Without real education, the gap between the rich and everyone else will grow, even if kids do well in school. If the gap between rich and poor grows, the probability of civil unrest and revolution grows as well. Human Assets and Liabilities as we grew older, Rich Dad made his son and me aware of human assets and liabilities, not just financial assets and liabilities. You can see the diagram that Rich Dad drew for his son and me in the accompanying PDF labeled as figure 11.1. Rich Dad then said, Your greatest assets are people, so people are your greatest liabilities. When a parent says these words to me, I know education is in trouble, but my child goes to a great school. I draw the same diagram of human assets and liabilities. Once the class had an idea of how a financial statement works, especially assets putting money in their pockets and liabilities taking money from their pockets, I would then show them Rich Dad's balance sheet of people. I would ask the class to look at the financial statement and discuss who are assets and who are liabilities in their lives today and in the future. Discussions are awkward at first. No one wants to label anyone a liability. Yet, as the discussions progressed, a few truths started to come to the surface. As truths begin to be told, I hear statements such as, My son dropped out of school, and now I have to pay off his student loan debt. He still can't find a job. My daughter's husband is a drug addict. She left him with her five kids, and now she lives at home with us. She has a college degree but can't work because three of her kids are under 12 years of age. My father lost his job as an executive when the store he worked for closed. He has used up his 401k savings. Now he lives with us. He wants to work but can't find a high-paying job. My financial advisor's advice has not made me any money. I am six years from retirement. I am wondering how I will be able to retire. My business partner is ill. Now I have to support him and his family. I owe back taxes. The government is threatening to garnish my wages. 
The reason I owe back taxes is because I do not earn enough to live on. I can't even afford to live paycheck to paycheck. I fall further behind every month. On top of that, I can't afford prescriptions for my wife and me. At the end of the discussion, I ask, Do you still think education is preparing people for the real world? It's a warning that bears repeating. In the information age, because change is invisible and money is invisible, without a real financial education, how do parents know what schools have not taught and are not teaching their children? One of Fuller's reasons for writing Critical Path was, Because of my driving conviction that all of humanity is in peril of extinction, if each one of us does not dare, now and henceforth, always to tell only the truth and all the truth, and to do so promptly, right now. Translation, for humanity to survive, each of us needs to start telling the truth. When people start talking about the human liabilities in their lives, they start telling the truth about the inadequacy of their children's and their own education. Simply put, education is failing to prepare people for a changing world of accelerating acceleration, a world of invisible change and invisible money. Without real spiritual education, people are paralyzed. Because fake teachers teach them not to make mistakes and not to ask for help, because asking for help is cheating. Without real financial education, people are blind because it is easier for the academic elite to steal the wealth of blind people via the money they work for. Without real spiritual and financial education, you are right. You cannot do what I do. This is not new information. It stood the test of time in the Bible. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. There is good news. In the next chapter, you will learn about entrepreneurs in education, people who are doing what needs to be done outside the obsolete educational system. Your Questions, Robert's Answers Question. Isn't there value in a college education apart from the academics? Gary B., Singapore. Answer. Sure there is. For many people, college can be the first time they're exposed to a wide variety of points of view. It's a time to test wings and boundaries, a time to experience new things and meet new people who, in many cases, will have different backgrounds, ideas, and opinions. Education takes many forms, and the college experience is one of them. What each person must weigh is the ROI, the return on investment into a traditional college education, and the potential burden of student loan debt. There is no one-size-fits-all formula, and each person must evaluate the pros and cons, as well as his or her goals and vision for the future against the expense. Question. What irks you most about most traditional education? Adam C., Czech Republic. Answer. A few things, actually, and they're all connected. Bottom line is that traditional education does not prepare people of any age for the real world. We don't exist or work in silos. We need to cooperate and collaborate. School calls that cheating, and in my opinion, the true measure and test of intelligence 
is our ability to be open-minded enough to evaluate and appreciate other points of view, other ways at looking at things. In school, there's usually one right answer. In the real world, the right answer is often dependent upon individual circumstances or conditions. Question. When you say that saying, I can't, or I can't afford it, shuts down your mind, what do you mean? Cecilia J., United Kingdom. Answer. I mean that statements like those close your mind to possibilities. It's small thinking, when you should be thinking big, or at least bigger. If you ask yourself instead, how can I afford it, you are engaging your brain to think of ideas, solutions, and opportunities. Question. Would it be better to start learning in university with lower cost and then try to move to a better one? Agimbi, Estonia. Answer. Each of us needs to decide what's right for us. The value of any particular school, university or otherwise, is often a product of the student. Question. So what is real education? Billy Kay, South Africa. Answer. Real education should empower you to do whatever it is that you want to do. That education comes from real teachers, people who have actually done what you want to do, and you should be an active participant in the process. Question. In this age of accelerating acceleration, with information overload and everything moving so fast, how do you know who you can trust? Alexei C., Turkey. Answer. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And as with so many things in life, the answer starts with education. It starts with you becoming smarter so you can better evaluate truth from lies and what's real and true from what is fake. Question. How can I learn the language of money? Angela S., New Zealand. Answer. Start with expanding your vocabulary related to words about money, finance, and the economy. Words have power. Learn a new word every day, and soon you'll find that you hear those words on television and on the radio and see them in news articles or on the Internet. Take the time to understand what you hear and read, and if you don't understand something, find someone who can explain it to you and discuss it with you. Question. I've always felt that a huge part of education is the responsibility of parents. What's your take on that? Justin J., USA. Answer. Well, since I call my most powerful mentor Rich Dad, I guess the answer to that question is pretty obvious. Our parents are our first, and in many cases, best teachers. This is especially true if parents raise children who are naturally curious, eager to explore and experience, willing to ask questions, and open to considering more than a single right answer. Most important, perhaps, is that parents can have a huge impact on how a child views mistakes. Mistakes are how we learn, and there's a lesson in every one of them. Mistakes are opportunities to learn positive experiences in our learning curve of life. Chapter 12 
Entrepreneurs in Education Can You See the Future? In July 2018, U.S. President Donald Trump issued an executive order proclaiming the re-education and retraining of American workers. Many big corporations are behind the president's education initiative. This is an example of fake news. President Trump's executive order sounds great, a great idea, obviously timed to attract more votes from workers. Real news. The real news is that the United States already spends over $1 billion a year on re-education and retraining of its workforce. Real news. The real news is that re-education and retraining programs are not working. Why re-education does not work. The idea of retraining and re-education is a noble idea. The problem is that re-education programs, as they exist, have not worked. And the reason the programs do not work is because our educational methods do not work. All one has to do is look at the higher levels of teacher diagram, and it becomes apparent that how we teach is obsolete, ineffective, and boring. This diagram is figure 8.1 in the accompanying PDF. As stated earlier, one of the greatest crimes of education is how many young people leave school hating school. How many people struggle financially because they left school hating school. How many people are in jail because they hated school. How many people are stuck in jobs they hate because they hated school. Granted, traditional education does a great job for approximately 25% of the population. The chaos that it creates for the other 75% is the problem. I was on the borderline, often close to dropping out because I hated school. I knew I was not stupid. I had high aptitude scores. I just hated traditional schools, traditional teachers, and especially the boring process of traditional education. Eight life events saved me from quitting school. One being an apprentice to Rich Dad and working in a real business. 2. Rich Dad teaching via the game of Monopoly. He made learning fun. 3. Having great teachers such as my 5th grade teacher, Harold Ely, a teacher who inspired me to learn rather than memorize answers. 4. Attending a military academy rather than a traditional university. 5. Attending seminars regularly rather than returning to traditional schools for advanced degrees. 6. Following the three wise men from the Bible, constantly seeking great teachers outside the educational system. 7. Having two dads and learning that all coins have three sides. 8. Learning that in real life there is more than one right answer. President Kennedy and Education President Trump is not the first president to propose the re-education of our displaced workers. As Stephen Brill recounts in his book Tailspin, in 1962, President John F. Kennedy proposed that the United States expand global trade by lowering tariffs and restrictions on foreign imports. Both Republicans and Democrats were tentatively in favor of trade liberalization at the time during the Cold War, 
though the Republicans were more protectionist. Kennedy was aware expanding global trade would wipe out U.S. jobs. That is why, in 1962, he also proposed the formation of TAA, Trade Adjustment Assistance, a federal program to re-educate unemployed workers. President Kennedy did not want a small group of workers who would lose their jobs to be the price for a national benefit to millions of Americans. Kennedy said, When considerations of national policy make it desirable to avoid higher tariffs, those injured by that foreign competition should not be required to bear the full brunt of the impact. Rather, the burden of economic adjustment should be borne in part by the federal government. Translation. Lower tariffs will benefit America and Americans. A few will lose their jobs. The burden of re-education of unemployed workers should be the responsibility of the federal government. Kennedy's TAA offered displaced workers as much as 65% of the individual's average weekly wage for 52 weeks and up to 65 weeks for workers over age 60, and enrollment in education and training programs to develop higher and different skills. The program also provided funds to families if they needed to relocate to find a new job. Strong Opposition President Kennedy's program faced strong opposition from Republicans. One of the most vocal opponents was Senator Prescott Bush, father and grandfather of future presidents George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. In spite of the opposition, Kennedy succeeded in getting TAA passed. TAA has had mixed reviews. It's been reported that during the first six years after its passage, and although TAA came with a $1 billion price tag, not a single worker had received assistance from the government. For most workers who lost their jobs, TAA proved to be an extension of unemployment insurance, not education or job retraining. One reason why workers did not use the education and retraining program was due to TAA's educational requirements, the prerequisites before the worker was required to receive educational assistance. Workers had to complete a high school equivalency and enroll full-time in a community college or vocational school before TAA allocated funds for further education and training. This was impractical because most workers needed to replace lost income as soon as possible. They could not afford to go back to school before they received TAA funds for education and training. EBT versus Education Earlier in this book, I mentioned that in 1994, the sugar plantations left Hilo, Hawaii, and leaving many once highly paid workers unemployed. Many sugar plantation workers did not have a high school diploma because they did not need a high school education to get a high-paying job. Today, rather than receive the education and retraining they need, many live on EBT cards. Rather than re-educate workers, which would return them to being taxpayers in a capitalist system, they receive welfare in a socialist system. That is why socialism is growing in America. As Brill further researches in Tailspin in 2001, 
The Government Accountability Office, GAO, conducted case studies, including one in Martinsville and Henry County, Virginia. The study found that of the 6,000 jobs lost in less than a decade, fewer than 20% of the TAA-eligible workers enrolled in re-education programs. Of the 20% who did enroll, many dropped out because they could not complete remedial classes and occupational training before their income support expired. Another GAO study found three-quarters of workers who did qualify for TAA never used it. Another TAA program study reported that the few who did complete the program never ended up with jobs remotely equivalent to the jobs they had lost. It's our education, stupid. Our education is the problem. It is what we teach, how we teach, and who teaches that is the problem. Again, I'll refer to the higher levels of teacher diagram. One. How many times have you been sitting in class only to realize that your body was there, but your brain wasn't? 2. How many times have you sat in class looking at the time rather than listening to the teacher? 3. How many times have you crammed for a test rather than being inspired to learn? Learning from Rich Dad I love the higher levels of teacher diagram because it illustrates the difference between my rich dad and my poor dad. I worked for free as an apprentice for my rich dad, doing the real thing. In exchange, rich dad had us play Monopoly and narrated lessons as we moved our pieces around the game board. On a regular basis, we would visit his real greenhouses, which eventually became a giant red hotel. Real education was fun, exciting, and challenging, certainly never boring. There were so many times that I got in trouble at home because I came home late. I came home late because I did not want to stop learning from Rich Dad. I always wanted to learn more. When I came home late, the only words I heard were, Have you done your homework? If you don't get good grades, you won't get a good job. Becoming an Entrepreneur in Education In 1983, after Fuller passed and I read Grunch of Giants, I knew I could no longer remain an entrepreneur in the rock and roll business, making a lot of money producing licensed products for rock bands like Duran Duran, Van Halen, Judas Priest, Boy George, Ted Nugent, and The Police. Something inside of me told me it was time to become an entrepreneur in education. I did not know how I was going to do it. I just knew I could not keep doing what I was doing. In 1983, I met Kim, someone who was also searching for her life's purpose. In 1984, we held hands and took our leap of faith, leaving beautiful Hawaii and landing in California. It was not long before our money ran out, yet we kept going. After our money ran out, we were homeless for a week, sleeping in an old brown Toyota Celica at beach parks in San Diego, California, before finally living in the basement of a friend who took us in. It was our test of faith. David versus Goliath In 1983, Kim and I realized we were taking on the educational system of grunge and the academic elites. It was David versus Goliath. 
What kept us going were friends and family who encouraged us to stay the course, many of whom offered financial assistance, which we never accepted. We were on a mission to find out if there really was a God, and we knew if we accepted money, that money would dilute our faith. Instead, we survived on wisdom from people like Bucky Fuller, who went through a similar test of faith for years, never working for money, only doing what he thought God wanted him to do, and constantly asking himself, What can I do? I'm just a little guy. It took Kim and me ten years to achieve financial freedom. In 1994, Kim and I retired, finally free. Kim was 37, and I was 47. In 1996, Kim and I created the Cash Flow board game. In 1997, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was released as a self-published book because every book editor we approached said that I did not know what I was talking about. In 2000, Oprah called, and the rest is history. In 2002, Donald Trump and I met backstage at an event where we spoke to thousands of raving fans in America and Australia. Since then, we have written two books together, becoming partners in real financial education. In 2008, I was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer on CNN and predicted the crash and bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. Six months later, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy and the Great Recession began. The gap between the rich, middle class, and poor is growing, just as Donald Trump and I predicted and wrote about in our books. Repeating Fuller's statements from his introduction to Critical Path. Twilight of the World's Power Structures. Humanity is moving ever deeper into crisis, a crisis without precedent. Translation. In 1982, Fuller was warning the information age is coming. Grunch will lose its power in the information age. The crisis will grow worse because Grunch will fight to hold on to its power. Desperate people do desperate things. Fuller also stated the information age will usher in the age of integrity. Grunch will be exposed. The crisis will accelerate due to Grunch doing anything in its power to hold on to power. You can sense Grunch holding on for dear life. Its central banks being challenged by the people's money, such as Bitcoin. Another way Grunch holds on to its power is via a corrupted education system, a system without a soul and void of real education. That is why Kim and I became entrepreneurs in education. Our board game Cash Flow is designed to bypass the education system and return real education to the people of the world via people teaching people. People teaching people. Kim and I designed the cash flow game not to give people answers that people should memorize, but to inspire people to learn more by giving players a tiny glimpse into the possibility of a richer life. Each time a person plays the game, they gain another spiritual glimpse into a brighter future for themselves and their families. My earlier warning to parents bears repeating. I think... In today's invisible world of technology and money, it is almost impossible for teachers, parents, and students to know what is missing from real education. 
In the information age, it is imperative that people take back control of education from the government. Clinton and China in 1962, President John Kennedy, concerned about globalization, introduced TAA. In 1972, President Richard Nixon opened the door to China. In 1999, President Bill Clinton encouraged the admission of China into the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Clinton promised that opening trade with China would increase U.S. jobs and reduce our trade deficit. He also said, this is a hundred-to-nothing deal for America. In 2001, China was admitted to the WTO. As you know, Clinton often has a problem with the truth. The deal turned out to be a hundred-to-nothing deal in favor of China. As Brill notes in Tailspin, from 2000 to 2009, the U.S. trade deficit with China nearly tripled, ballooning from $83 billion to $227 billion. Over the same period, the U.S. lost 5.6 million manufacturing jobs, including 627,000 in computer and electronic products. By 2016, the trade deficit with China was $347 billion. The Side Effects of Trade Deficits The lopsided trade deficit not only has hurt workers who have lost their jobs, the trade deficit hurt mom and pop savers, homeowners, and investors. The trade deficit contributed to the financial collapse in 2008. Brill writes, Because the Chinese were accumulating so much cash and need a safe place to invest it, they dramatically increased demand for U.S. Treasury bonds. That pushed interest rates in the United States down to unprecedented lows, which contributed to easy money being available to finance even the riskiest mortgages and, with them, the mortgage-backed securities and their derivatives. In 2008, the stock market and real estate markets nearly collapsed and interest rates plunged further. In 2018, the crisis is not over. It's only gotten bigger. As Fuller wrote in 1981, humanity is moving ever deeper into crisis, a crisis without precedent. The good news is entrepreneurs are coming to the rescue. Entrepreneurs in Education One notable entrepreneurial business is Khan Academy a company that makes academic education available to millions of students throughout the world. Students do not need to take out student loans to learn from Khan Academy. In Tailspin, Brill highlights C4Q, which stands for Coalition for Queens, an educational organization started by Jukai Su, a U.S. Army captain, an Iraq war veteran, and an immigrant born in Taiwan and educated at Harvard. As Sue tells Brill, some of the smartest, hardest-working people I've ever met were soldiers who didn't graduate from college. C4Q teaches non-techies to become techies who are able to write computer code. While there are many schools and educational programs that teach the same subject, C4Q is different in the way it teaches. A few differences are, 1. Founder Jukai Sue is not a programmer. He has no computer background or experience. 
Two, Jukai Su hires real teachers from the industry rather than fake teachers from academia. Three, C4Q is run like a military academy. The educational process is devoted to intense teamwork, with teachers and students working cooperatively rather than competitively. Four, in 2013, his first class of 21 students earned about $18,000 a year. Most were service workers without much education. 52% of graduates are female and 60% African Americans. 55% lacked college degrees. 5. The 88 recruits who started in September 2016 and graduated in June 2017 landed jobs averaging $85,000 a year. They were hired by companies such as Uber, Blue Apron, Pinterest, Google, BuzzFeed, and J.P. Morgan Chase. 6. The graduates agree to pay the organization 12% of their earnings for the following two years. 7. It is not like a student loan, which often traps students who do not graduate or get good jobs into a lifetime of horrible debt. 8. The 12% inspires charitable donors to become investors, sharing in the returns from successful students, making it more than another hot charity. Adding a capitalistic profit component to the nonprofit C4Q adds a financial component socialism lacks, financial sustainability. Brill also highlights Year Up, founded in 2000, another private nonprofit offering re-education and training for a broader mix of job categories. This from Tailspin. Year Up currently has 20 locations across the United States and has trained over 18,000 students for technology-related jobs such as hardware repair help desk operations, and communication skills that employers expect for those filling entry-level, middle-skill jobs. Each student signs a contract committing to tough standards of conduct and participation. They receive 200 points at the beginning and lose points for any transgressions, such as being late or disrespectful or failing to complete homework on time. 25% typically lose their 200 points and are removed from the program. Much like a military school, brains and grades at year-up are not enough. Much like the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, a student could be removed for demerits received for not obeying the code of honor and or not behaving like an officer and a gentleman, even if they had the highest grades. Although Year Up does not secure its graduates the high-paying jobs that C4Q secures for its coders, Year Up gets students out of poverty and into the middle class. Small Potential for Success Another academic elite like Stephen Brill breaks his silence. This time, it's a Harvard alum named Sean Acor, who has become an entrepreneur in education. In his book, Big Potential, published in 2018, the lecturer writes, Three years ago, as I was researching the hidden connections that underlie success and human potential, I had a breakthrough. I became a father. When my son, Leo, came into the world, he was quite literally helpless. He couldn't even roll over by himself. But as he grew older, he became more capable 
and with each new skill he picked up, like any good positive psychology researcher would, I found myself praising him, saying, Leo, you did that all by yourself. I'm proud of you. And after a while, Leo began parroting it back to me in a soft but proud voice. All by myself. That's when I realized, first as children, then as adults in the workplace, we are conditioned to disproportionately value things we do on our own. As a father, I stopped my praise and guidance there. My son might come to view independent achievement as the ultimate test of our mettle. But in reality, it is not. There is a whole other level. The cycle begins at a young age. At school, our kids are trained to study diligently and individually so they can best others on exams. If they seek help on projects from other students, they are chastised for cheating. They are given multiple hours of homework a night, forcing them to trade time with others for more time working in isolation. Sabotage and Win my wife, Kim, recalls being a student at University of California at Santa Barbara. She said, Students would sabotage other students' projects just for a better grade. She also said, A few students would go to the library and actually cut out the pages of books that other students needed to study. Kim ultimately left UC Santa Barbara before graduating graduating from the University of Hawaii simply to get her degree and get out of school. I left, never wanting to return to higher education and higher degrees. The Rise of Depression ACOR's Big Potential is a big book for our times. A few of the book's main points are The formula is simple. Be better and smarter and more creative than everyone else and you will be successful. But this formula is inaccurate. Success is not just about how creative or smart or driven you are, but how well you are able to connect with, contribute to, and benefit from the ecosystem of people around you. It isn't just how highly rated your college or workplace is, but how well you fit in there. It isn't just about how many points you score, but how well you complement the skills of the team. By clinging to the old formula for success, we are leaving enormous amounts of potential untapped. I saw this firsthand during my 12 years at Harvard as I watched students crash upon the shoals of hypercompetition, then get stranded on the banks of self-doubt and stress. A staggering 80% of Harvard students report going through depression at some point in their college life. Leaving Harvard and becoming an entrepreneur in education, Acor began sharing his findings on the power of cooperation to schools and businesses all over the world. Now that I have done this work all over the world, I know depression is not a problem reserved for Ivy League students. The average age of being diagnosed with depression in 1978 was 29. In 2009, the average age was 14 and a half. Depression and violence. Could the rise in students murdering students in schools with guns be due to depression, loneliness, and isolation?
Why was U.S. Congressman Steve Scalise shot while practicing baseball just because he was a Republican? Why was Congresswoman Gabby Giffords shot while greeting constituents just because she was a Democrat? Why is gun violence in major cities on the rise? Why are people less civil and more disrespectful toward each other? Why is bullying in school a serious and growing problem? Do terrorism and violence begin in school? Virtuous Cycle ACOR offers solutions. One is called the Virtuous Cycle, which he defines as such. A positive feedback loop whereby making others better leads to more resources, energy, and experiences that make you better, fueling the cycle again. Thus, making others better takes your success to the next level. Thus, small potential is the limited success you can achieve alone. Big potential is the success you can achieve only in a virtuous cycle with others. Schools promote small potential by competing rather than cooperating. ACOR teaches how to unlearn what is taught in school, learning how to cooperate and tap into your bigger potential by first helping others become more successful. Rich Dad's Virtuous Cycle Rich Dad had his own virtuous cycle one Saturday each month. That is how he and his group got smarter and richer, learning from each other. They were real teachers, working together, helping each other solve real problems, without going back to school. One of the most popular new Rich Dad books is More Important Than Money. The book includes chapters by each of the Rich Dad advisors, real teachers, doing the real thing in real life. The book is about how we all support each other, getting smarter, richer, and more successful without going back to school, where cooperating and helping fellow students is considered cheating. A picture is worth a thousand words. Images 12.1 through 12.3 in the accompanying PDF tell the story about the difference between civilian flight school and military flight school. It's the difference between small and big potential, between cheating and collaborating. Intense teamwork requires intense spiritual education. What does it take to become a military pilot? Intense spiritual education requires dedication to a mission, the highest degree of respect for yourself and for everyone on your team, and precise mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual discipline while training to be the best of the best. This intense spiritual teamwork is instilled in every student pilot from the first day of flight school. This intense spiritual teamwork is carried into every mission, in every pilot, even if they do not become one of the elite blue angels, the best of the best pilots in the world. Intense spiritual teamwork is the reason entrepreneurs in education are making a difference while traditional education programs like TAA cost billions and are failing. In the next chapter, you will learn who your best teacher can be. Your Questions, Robert's Answers Question. You call them elites. 
who are they specifically? Alex P., Germany. Answer. Elites are generally higher-income, college-educated people. Most elites are not rich. Many are managers, executives, and professionals, people who make more money than the working class. There are differences between elites and snobs. The world has many snobs, many of whom are neither elite or rich. Question. Where are these elites found and how many of them are there? Pippa M., Romania. Answer. Elites tend to gather in neighborhoods, organizations, and clubs, but so do the rich, the poor, and the working classes. They gather around shared values and interests and are often unified by education and economic status. Question. Are all elites bad? Paul G., Ireland. Answer. No, not at all. Elite does not mean bad. Most of them do great work and contribute greatly to society. Elite is more of a socioeconomic educational classification juxtaposed against the working class. Minorities join the elite via higher education. Many minority families, including my family, stress higher education for that very reason. Four generations ago, my ancestors came to Hawaii as laborers. Going to college was their ticket off the plantations, out of the working class, and into the ranks of the educated elite. As you know, I did not want to be a highly educated elite government employee like my poor dad. I wanted to be rich, so I became an entrepreneur like my rich dad. Question. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between what's real and what isn't. How do we know if you are fake or real? James V., South Africa. Answer. You don't. Only my bankers and accountants know if I am real or fake. In today's world of fake social media, I can be anything. I've been called a fake many times by many people. I'll let my numbers, my financial statement, speak for me. Question. What's your response to those who say that gold is obsolete? Peter C., USA. Answer. I say, ask that same question in 20 years. Then you will have your real answer. Until then, in gold I trust. Question. Do you think that the introduction of the Internet, iPhone, and other technologies will eventually expose the elites and what they have done to the rest of us? Elaine K., United Kingdom. Answer. According to Roger McNamee, author of Zucked, artificial intelligence will only make fake news and disinformation more potent, more real, and more destructive to the lives of the unsuspecting. Simply said, AI, artificial intelligence, will make our lives much better and much worse. The information age is just beginning. We have not seen anything yet. Chapter 13. A Student of God. Choose your teachers well. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Yankee Tango 96. Engine failure. We're going in. Our gunship had been circling in an oval racetrack pattern about a mile away from the carrier at 1,500 feet when our engine quit. We had been circling, waiting for the larger troop transport helicopters to launch. 
Our tiny, single-engine aircraft was heavy, very, very heavy, with a crew of five, six machine guns, canisters of ammunition, and two rocket pods that held 18 rockets. When I am asked, how does a gunship fly without an engine, my answer is, like a rock. Due to years and years of practicing emergency procedures, including crashing, every day we flew. The moment the engine failed, I reflexively pushed the aircraft's nose toward the ocean, although everything in me was screaming, pull back, pull back, pull back, add power, add power, add power. If I had pulled back on a control called the cyclic, the stick, and added power, pulling up on the collective, the gas, we would have all died. Helicopters do not glide like planes. When the engine on a helicopter quits, there is no glide time, no time to think about what to do. There are no parachutes for helicopter crews. When the engine quits, we go down. That is the reason why on every flight we simulate an engine failure by turning off the power. I assure you, practicing an engine failure is frightening, although we know we can turn the engine back on. On every practiced engine failure, we roll the power off, pushing the nose forward and go face to face with the eyes of death. Helicopter pilots repeat to ourselves the mantra, pilots who pull up to avoid death die. Pilots who push forward to face death live. As the higher levels of teacher diagram explains, for years we simulated engine failure after engine failure. On this day, we graduated to do the real thing. As soon as the engine quit, the crew, two gunners, and a crew chief also began following their training, jettisoning the machine guns, rockets, and throwing ammo cans out the door. We were well rehearsed. We were now doing the real thing. There was no time for panic. The fall from the sky went into a slow-motion silence. A calm came over all of us as the noise and chaos going on outside the aircraft faded from our consciousness. Going Exterior Suddenly, as I sat flying a dead aircraft, I entered another dimension of life. Later, I would learn this dimension is called going exterior, or some spiritual practices call becoming the observer. For an eternity, there was a break in the reality we call time. There seemed to be no past, no future, only the present, only the now. I was now observing myself and the crew from another dimension of life. I could see the back of my own helmet, the back of my co-pilot's helmet, the crew behind the pilots systematically running through the to-dos on their emergency checklist. I could also see the aircraft carrier and the other ships in the flotilla in the distance, and the vast ocean below. For an eternity, I was exterior to that moment in time. I was outside of time. Rather than fear, I felt a sense of peace, compassion, and love for myself and my crew as the aircraft silently auto-rotated toward the ocean and our possible deaths. All in all, it was surreal, not of this world. The final phase of the crash was textbook, as they say. There was no panic, no fear, 
just a calm sense of being in the present, outside of time. Just before the aircraft impacted the water, I finally pulled back, causing the craft to glide silently just above the water. As airspeed bled off, the nose pulled, now pointing into the sky. The blades grabbed the air, the silence disturbed by a loud whoop, whoop, whoop. After stalling, I then rocked the nose forward to level, and just before the aircraft hit the water, the collective, the power control that guides the aircraft up or down, was finally pulled, and the centrifugal forces stored in the blades came to life, holding the aircraft to hover for one last time and allowing the gunship to settle gently into the ocean. As soon as the aircraft touched the water, the aircraft tipped to the right, the blade hit the water, tearing the engine and transmission off, cutting through the cockpit as the aircraft began to sink into the ocean, almost as fast as we fell toward the ocean. All five of us were rescued four hours later by a Navy motor launch. Swimming in shark-infested waters for four hours was more terrifying than the two-minute fall from the sky. During the post-crash debrief and investigation, I said nothing about going exterior to the investigators or my crew. The experience was outside my reality at that time, and I had no way to sensibly talk about an experience I had never previously experienced. So I said nothing because I did not know how to talk about it. My Search for Teachers as I stated earlier, I returned from Vietnam to be stationed in Hawaii in January 1973 for the final years on my military contract. My flying days were coming to an end, and I, like the three wise men, went in search of my next teachers. To keep my poor dad happy, I enrolled in traditional education. I enrolled in the MBA program at the University of Hawaii. I did not care for the MBA program or the teachers and dropped out after six months. At the suggestion of my rich dad, I enrolled in a three-day real estate investment seminar. I wanted to learn to use debt or no money down to make money. I loved the seminar and the teacher. Ninety days after leaving that three-day course analyzing 100 properties, I purchased my first income property for nothing down, using 100% debt, putting $25 a month in my pocket tax-free, an infinite return, and a life-transforming experience. Satori In Buddhism, a Satori experience is a flash of enlightenment. Creating $25 out of nothing, even if it was only $25, was my Satori experience. Although only $25, it was still an infinite return. I had money without using any of my own money. I had made $25 a month out of pure financial education. In that Satori moment, I realized I would never have to spend my life working for money, chasing a paycheck, clinging to job security, living below my means, saving money, and investing in the stock market in hopes of a secure retirement, as most people will spend their lives doing. I called my real estate instructor to thank him. 
Almost every year since, I have attended one or two investment seminars a year seeking higher financial enlightenment, not job security. Also, at the suggestion of my rich dad, I began job interviews with companies that offered sales training programs. Rich Dad said, The number one skill of an entrepreneur is the ability to sell. He also said, Sales equal income. The reason most people struggle financially is because they can't sell. One business that advertised professional sales training as a benefit was New York Life. So I called and asked for a job interview. I showed up in downtown Honolulu in my Marine Corps uniform, which was risky in many ways and on many levels. The executive in charge of hiring was a great guy. He sung praises on how great New York Life sales training program was, as well as how much money I could make. As the interview wound down, he asked me questions I had never been asked before. It seemed he was searching for my spiritual aspirations more than my money and professional dreams. Realizing I had no idea what he was talking about, he reached into his desk and handed me a ticket to a free guest seminar. Having the evening for this free seminar open, I showed up at the Hilton Hotel's Coral Ballroom in Waikiki. This time not in my military uniform, yet obviously in the military due to my marine haircut. Immediately, I was pleasantly surprised at the lines of happy, smiling people greeting me along the way to the ballroom. No one was spitting or glaring at me. Even the women were nice to me, which was a real surprise, since back then women tended to avoid men in uniform. Immediately, I suspected they were phonies or members of some strange hippie or religious cult. There were about 300 guests at the seminar. There was no alcohol being served, and I needed a drink. I sat farthest from the front and nearest the back door. Finally, all these happy, smiling people began to clap as a stunningly beautiful woman named Marsha Martin, dressed in white, took the stage, welcoming us before introducing the speaker. Werner Erhard was just as spectacular, trim, fit, handsome, also dressed in white, and an even more eloquent speaker. There was no rah-rah or motivational phoniness, although clear and eloquent. I had no idea what either of them was talking about. It was not long before I was ready to run. I knew it was some Kool-Aid drinking cult, yet for some reason I decided to stay at least until the first break. Even at the break, I still had no idea what they were talking about. I heard a lot about getting it, although I had no idea what I was supposed to get. At the break, the full court press was on. These happy, smiling people were walking around, putting the hard sell on the guests. I saw the executive from New York Life and avoided him. The other smiling guys were easy to stiff-arm, but I could not say no to the beautiful, happy women. A girlfriend of a fellow pilot was there. Her name was Linda, and she was one of the smiling, beautiful women, so I felt more at ease to ask her more direct questions. How much do you get paid to sell for this guy, Erhard? was my question. Her answer was, we do this for free. Why do you do this? was my next question. 
When she could not answer that question, at least to the satisfaction of my logical mind, I was gone. I was ready to leave. As I turned to leave the guest seminar, my fellow pilot's girlfriend came up to me and asked, So are you going to sign up for the EST seminar? Hell no, I said. I don't need this, whatever it is. She asked again and again, I said. I do not need this stuff. Fed up with me, she finally said, Of all the people in this room, you need this training the most. You know I love your fellow pilot, Jim. He wants to marry me, but I can't marry him. He won't even do what you did tonight, show up and listen to something new, a different type of education. He needs this two-week program as much as you do. You Marines have the biggest bullshit macho act running your lives. You guys are all acts, great guys, but total acts, total machines, total robots. I just wish one of you had the guts to take a look behind your super macho marine pilot acts and find out who you really are. At one level, she was pissing me off. On another level, I finally kind of understood what the guy at New York Life, Erhard, and my fellow pilot's girlfriend were talking about. I was finally getting it. Giving in, I put my $35 deposit down for the next two-weekend EST, or Erhard Seminar Training, and left without returning to the guest seminar. About a month later, I was walking into another hotel ballroom in Waikiki for a two-weekend EST training. EST had great teachers. I thought the Marines were tough. These guys were as tough, if not tougher. The opening statement from instructor Landon Carter, a Harvard graduate, was, Your lives do not work. I had to agree. My life looked good from the outside, but on the inside, I knew my life was a mess. No one could go to the bathroom or for any break for over 11 hours. 300 of us sat there through process after process, re-examining our lives that were not working. At the end of two weekends, I had a breakthrough. I popped into a different dimension and better understood where I went on the day of my crash, the day I went exterior, met the observer, the day I radioed, mayday, 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 the day I called for help. Our mind is our problem. The reason I could not talk about my mayday day was because of my mind. My mind was the problem. The reason I could not understand what the recruiter at New York Life was talking about was my mind. My mind was my problem. My mind was in the way of the message. The reason I could not understand Martin or Erhard was because my mind was in the way. The reason Jim and I could not understand Linda was because his mind and my mind were in the way. Only when she insulted my ego, calling us both super macho acts, was there a brief crack in the armor of my mind, and I heard what she was desperately saying. It took two long and painful weekends for the EST trainers to get my mind out of the way, put a crack into my macho act, and let the sunshine in. 
When I returned to my squadron the Monday after the seminar, my fellow pilots thought I had joined a religious cult, drank the Kool-Aid, become a pot-smoking hippie, or come out of the closet, none of which was true. I was simply happier and more at peace with who I really am behind my macho marine pilot act. I was even happier with my act. The difference was I knew it was an act, not the real me. Seminar Junkie After the EST experience, I became what is known as a seminar junkie. Whenever there was a new New Age seminar in town, I was there. The stranger, the weirder, the more out there, the better. I simply wanted to get outside my limiting mind and ego and test my reality. When movie star Shirley MacLaine came to town to give a talk on past lives, I was in the audience, keeping an open mind, doing my best to expand my awareness of life. My marine pilot friends knew I had tumbled off the deep end. I had dropped out of the MBA program and was buying real estate with no money, using 100% debt for infinite returns. I was less macho, and more importantly, I was happier with me. I was also dating beautiful, happy women I happened to meet at these seminars. Anytime a fellow Marine called me a New Age hippie or used other slurs and insults, I would simply smile, introduce them to my happy, beautiful date, and ask them how their luck was picking up women at the officer's club. 